Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 78. This morning, between chapters and Job, the plan is to take up a psalm, and this morning we come to Psalm 78. A very historical psalm that I have titled, Learning from Church History, Learning from the, the Church of the Old Testament, right? The people of God in the Old Testament were people saved by faith, essentially the same body of people as, as we are, and uh, their spiritual lessons are ones that we are to, to take up. So hear God's word from Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zone, He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well felt and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. 
So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zon. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. And God heard he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. I think most of us, many of us, uh, grew up learning the great stories of the Old Testament, the stories of Adam and Eve, of Moses and Egypt, the 
which involved the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, the rebellion in the wilderness. We've heard the stories of Joshua and Samuel and David and Goliath and and uh, Samson and Daniel. And in many cases, our parents learned these stories from their parents, and uh, we then learned them from our parents, and now we are teaching them to our children. And so generation after generation, these stories are taught, and this is exactly as it should be according to our psalm. But why? Why is it important that our children and our children's children hear these stories? As you know, many of the Old Testament stories are some of the most exciting stories that can be found in really in any books. But our desire to learn and to teach these stories must run far deeper than simply the excitement and adventure of a good story. In the New Testament, we are told about why these stories were recorded by God in his Bible. I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11, and just a few highlights from those verses. It says there that now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did. These things happened to them as an example, but were written for our instruction. Romans 15.4 also sheds light on why we have the Bible stories that we do. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So very clearly, the stories of the Old Testament, and by implication, the history of the, the, in, in the New Testament as well, in the book of Acts, things, these, these historical events are written as examples so that we can learn from the experiences of our ancestors. These stories are given to us to teach us important spiritual truths. And this psalm, Psalm 78, was written with this very purpose in mind. It's a psalm record, recalling and, and, and recording for us some of the great Old Testament stories and pointing out the lessons that God's people need to learn. James Montgomery Boyce says about the purpose of this psalm, its lesson is that history must not repeat itself. The people must never again be unbelieving. But they were, of course, especially when they rejected Jesus Christ. As we hear this psalm, we realize that God not only spoke through it to the church of the past, but God also preserved this for the church of today. Why is this? So that we also would see in the history of the past a reflection of ourselves. As we go through this psalm, stanza by stanza, let us take stock of the lessons that God wants us to learn You probably already realize this, but I will warn you ahead of time that this psalm is very humbling. You're not going to go away this morning feeling good about yourself. The psalm does not paint a pretty picture of our spiritual condition in and of ourselves, as we have inherited it from Adam and Eve, but it does paint a very pretty picture for us of God, of the nature of God, his mercy and his grace and his patience. There's something that we must always remember about God's grace as we are dealing with the Old Testament, and this psalm doesn't straight out say it, but any time God's grace comes, comes to us, it is through Jesus Christ. For the Old Testament saints, 
Their hope was in the promise of the Christ to come, and our hope is in the Christ who has come. But for the people of the Old Testament, the grace of God was based on what the coming Christ would do. And so whether Old Testament or or New Testament, our only hope of salvation from the curse of sin is Christ. And we must not lose sight of the fact that even the fact uh, of God warning his people and, and giving us spiritual lessons, it's because of his love toward us in Christ. In fact, through these lessons, through this psalm, uh, God is working through his Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. He's doing this to preserve you, his elect people, in your saving faith. So let's turn now to the first stanza of this psalm, uh, which covers verses 1 through 8. And this is a fitting introduction to two important truths that ought to guide any review of biblical history. And the first truth is that we are to learn from the past. And this psalm begins by urging us to pay attention. Well, to what exactly? Well, Asaph, the writer of this psalm, uses an interesting word there in verse 2 to describe this psalm. He refers to it as a parable. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. You've probably heard in Sunday school that rather succinct definition of a parable as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I think that's a helpful definition. And as you, as you think about these Old Testament stories, they are earthly stories. We are talking about real events that took place in history with real people. But as I've been already emphasizing, these stories have a very spiritual purpose and meaning. And so it fits that Asaph would call this psalm a parable because its purpose is to bring out the spiritual significance of these earthly stories. So Boyce points out that the word parable is actually made up of two words, para, which means alongside of, and bailing to throw, like so, in other words, to throw together. And so he, he, he goes on to explain a parable is the placing of one incident or story alongside something else so that we might learn by the comparison. And in this case, the past history of Israel is set alongside the present so that those living today might not repeat the people's past sins. So we need to, first of all, remember our duty to learn from the past. And then second, there's another important principle here, and that is that we are to instruct our children. We are to, the, the next generation is to be instructed. And uh, in verse 3, the psalmist says that the lessons he is going to talk about are ones that people of his generation Uh, had been taught by their fathers. He says, we will not hide from their children, but will tell to the coming generation the history of God's dealings with his people. uh, The the author Asaph says in verse 5 that we as parents have a duty as commanded by God to teach our children. And we should want to do this. It's important that we do this. And It's important because two things will happen. First of all, good things. Notice verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And then also, so that bad things will be avoided. The psalmist hopes that if his generation is faithful to teach the lessons of history, then their children will not be like those of the past who were stubborn and who were rebellious. Notice verse 8, the second part, a generation says, whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so the parable of church history, as it is properly taught, directs us and our children to the right things 
and warns us and our children away from the wrong things. Brings us now to stanza 2, verses 9 through 16, and to the specific example of Ephraim. And it seems interesting and perhaps even odd that, kind of strange, that Asaph would begin with uh, Ephraim in this survey of church history because Ephraim is really not remembered as a prominent tribe. And in fact, the incident mentioned in verse 9 of Ephraim turning back on the day of battle, that event is unknown to us. But yet there are things that we can learn from Ephraim. And the purpose of bringing up the history of Ephraim must be a warning to us against unbelief and sin. It's a warning about what can happen when people turn away from the Lord. It's a warning against presuming that just because your family members are faithful, that you and everyone that follows in your family will be faithful too. And I bring that up because Ephraim was a tribe that started out very well, but in time died away as a tribe of spiritual greatness. In fact, the end of Psalm 78 tells us rather sad news about Ephraim. But before we get to that, let's recall here the good beginning that Ephraim enjoyed. Remember that Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph. And Joseph was, of course, a great spiritual father of the faith, a godly man who is a great example to us of trust and faithfulness toward God. Even in times of unbelievable hardship, he turned to God and he and trusted God, and God used him in mighty ways. And this was the example, this was the spiritual legacy uh, passed on to Ephraim from Joseph. We also know that at the time of the invasion and conquest of Canaan, Ephraim was the largest and most prominent of the 12 tribes, and so things looked very promising for Ephraim. And along these lines, the tabernacle was kept for many years in in Shiloh, which was part of Ephraim's territory. And so in many ways, Ephraim started out being at the front and center of the life of the Old Testament church. But already by the time Asaph was writing Psalm 78, Ephraim had slipped away. We are told toward the end of Psalm 78 in verses 67 through 69, He, that is, God rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves, and he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. And so the tabernacle was moved out of the territory of Ephraim and into Judah's Mount Zion. So in general, Ephraim was replaced by Judah. And this was a warning to all of the tribes. This was judgment. This was not something that God decided either to just do out of the blue. We read in our psalm in verses 10 and 11 some very sad and condemning words about Ephraim. It says they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. This speaks of rebellion. This speaks of forgetfulness. Well, what specific things did they forget? Notice verses 12 through 16 refers to the events surrounding the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, how God led them, how he provided for them in the desert. They forgot these things. And this forgetfulness is really a symptom of their rebellion. There is this disregard for God. But of course, all the tribes, and we also tend to forget the gracious works of God toward us. So we need to be warned by the example of Ephraim of the danger of not persevering in our faith, of not continuing to trust in the Lord. We cannot 
we cannot expect to experience God's covenant blessings if we do not humble ourselves before him in repentance, if we're not recognizing our need for him in our lives. And history has shown since the time of Asaph the relevancy of this warning. The Jews were rejected for Gentiles. Many churches have come and gone. Even entire denominations that were once faithful have been set aside by God in order that he might do his work through others, people who take him and his word seriously. So let us learn from Ephraim. And then stanza three, which is verses 17 through 31. Boyce in his commentary gives this section the title, Putting God to the Test. And that arrives very naturally out of verse 18, which says, They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. When Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the devil told Jesus to jump from the temple and to presume upon the protection of God's angels. And Jesus rightly quoted in response Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, Do not test the Lord your God. We must not put ourselves in situations that require God to do a miracle to save us. Nor should we demand of him miracles that he has not promised to do. Psalm 78 warns us against such testing and brings out the evil nature of the testing of God that took place in the wilderness wandering. The problem was not that the people expected God to provide food and drink for them. That was not the problem. God had led them into the wilderness. It was only right that they would expect and and believe that God would provide their needs and, and keep them alive. And if they had humbly asked God for their daily bread, that would have been no problem. But that was not what they did. First of all, they were ungrateful for what God had given them. Verses 23 through 25 tell us of how God gave them manna. He commanded the skies above. He opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. And ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. And so God gave them food. He gave them food in abundance. They had plenty. And as for water, verse 20, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and streams overflowed. And yet, what was the response of these people? They were ungrateful. They didn't want just manna. They wanted the food of their fancy. That's how the New King James Version translates their verse 18. They craved variety, and specifically, they wanted meat. And what we also learn here in the stanza is that not only were they ungrateful, but they were unbelieving. They didn't believe he could give them the things that they craved. Verse 19 says they spoke against God and we are told what they said. And I take these words as making really a mockery of God's power. Verse 19, the second part, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Second part of verse 20, can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? This was the testing of God provoking him by essentially saying to him that if he really cared for them, if he really was God, he could and he would get these things for them. And what happened? Well, God gave them what they craved. He sent so many birds to them that they didn't know what to do with all of them. And as they stuffed their stomachs to the full, God proved his power to them, but he was also angry at the same time, angry over their covetousness, their ingratitude, their unbelief. Verse 21 records the Lord's response to the people's questioning of his ability to give them these things they craved. 
Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. Fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Verses 30 and 31 tell us further, but before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. And so we have yet another warning here against complaining, against testing the Lord, against unbelief. Then stanza four, verses thirty-two through thirty-nine. This flows right out of the events of stanza three, because stanza four is about the false repentance that happened after God's judgment. There's this very predictable pattern that these verses describe that still takes place. And I take verse thirty-two to be talking about the initial response to God's miraculous and gracious provision of meat. People craved meat. They tested God, challenging him to provide what they wanted, and he did. So what was their response to God's grace? Verse 32 says that in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. They did not fall down in shame, repenting of their attitude as they should have. They didn't thank the Lord as they should have. They greatly stuffed their faces. They did not show any spiritual improvement whatsoever. So what happened next? Well, God responded to their unbelief and unthankful attitude by continuing to put his heavy hand of judgment upon them. Verse 32 says, So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. And then verses 34 and 35 describe how when this judgment became extreme, then suddenly the people repented. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. And that's the way it is, isn't it? It's amazing how the threat of disease, of war, of other tragedies can give even an atheist a sudden interest in religion. Thinking Back many years ago to the terrorist attack on 9-11, I don't know if you can remember how even in the regular news, secular news of the world, the words God and prayer became a regular part of the language that was used. Our nation was suddenly interested in religion. And I heard that church attendance all over the country went, went way up. But then what has happened since then? I'm quite certain based on experience based on such passages as this, that many of the so-called conversions that took place were not really true ones, that many of these sudden converts have since gone back to their old ways, forgetting God and religion. Verses 36 and 37 tell us that even though the Hebrews sought God, remember that he was their provider, they were only flattering God with their mouth and lying with their tongues. It tells us it was a show. It was hypocrisy. They were not truly sorry for their sin in a way where they were turning from it and seeking refuge in the grace of God for forgiveness. They were willing to do and to say externally whatever would move God to back off on his judgments. And what is utterly amazing is God's response to these hypocrites, this nation of hypocrites. We would think that God's response would be to just call it quits with these rebels. Who could say a word if God decided to destroy these people 
And yet this is not what we read. We read of God responding in grace and mercy. Verses 38 and 39 have got to be some of the most awe-inspiring words in all of Scripture. Yet, yet, think, after all that has happened, after all of this hypocritical repentance, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often. He did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. So rather than continuing in this vicious cycle of more and more judgment, God broke the cycle. The fact is, we are weak creatures who are worthy of death, and if God were to give us what we deserve, we would die. We would be destroyed. If God were to stir up all of his wrath, there would be no hope for us. But God looked at us. He saw how weak and helpless we were. He had compassion on us. He felt for us. He turned his anger away. He decided to be patient and to forgive. Our hypocrisy and our rebellion was met with love. I say our hypocrisy and rebellion and speak of this psalm as directly applying to us because we ought not to pretend to be in a different category than the members of the church of Asaph's day. Let us not kid ourselves that we don't fall into the same mindset or behavior of the people that we are reading about. We also experience God's chastening judgments, and we also respond to such judgments often more interested in our own comfort than in God's glory. What, what I mean by that is that even you and I know how the Lord's chastening does wonders in making us interested in serving him like we should. It's also true that you and I repent under pressure and then later return back to our old ways. What also remains true is that God is gracious toward us despite our sin. In verses 38 and 39, we don't read the word Christ, but these verses which speak of God's mercy, and notice the word atonement, it speaks about our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that God forgives sinners. God is not able in his holiness and justice to just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't simply choose to just ignore it. He would not remain just and righteous. His justice demands that those who transgress the standard of his law be punished. And so anytime we read in scripture of God forgiving our sins, of, of his compassion, and of his turning away of his wrath, that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus gave himself to the suffering of the cross as an atoning sacrifice that covers our sins. Jesus is the one who obeyed the law of God perfectly and completely in order to merit the just rewards of obedience. He is the one who paid the price of our redemption. He met the demands of God's justice for us. And as a result of Christ, or as a result of his suffering, uh, his righteousness, his saving work, there's good news for us sinners. It's because of Christ that we have this gracious response recorded there in verses 38 and 39. Which brings us then to stanza five, which... Um, Verse 40 is the beginning of that stanza, and it falls almost exactly in the middle of the psalm. And so the, the, the commentators like to think of this psalm as having two halves. And uh, what makes one think of verse 40 and following as a separate section and a second half is that Asaph talks once again about the history way back in Egypt. It's like he's going back to the beginning and telling the story all over again, and yet he brings out different details, different things that God did. But he also, what he also brings out is that things have not really changed. That rebellion and forgetfulness 
seemed to be the inevitable response of God's people. Boyce, in his commentary, talks about this second section, and he makes some good points. He writes this, quote, In my judgment, the last half does not exactly repeat the first, but the fresh start is significant. For it is as though Asaph is acknowledging that God had done everything possible to win the people over. They had not responded. Thus, the only thing to do is to tell the entire story all over again, hoping that something about it might stick with them the second time. Think back on what God has done. In stanza one, we are reminded that he had done miracles, but the people had forgotten them. In stanza two, we are reminded that God provided for the people's needs abundantly, but they had remained un they had remained unsatisfied. In stanza three, we were reminded of God's just judgments, which only produced a false repentance. In fact, not even mercy was effective. In spite of his mercy, the people often rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Verse 40, miracles, provision, judgment, mercy, four great actions, yet in spite of them, the outcome was rebellion and unbelief. How was this possible? The answer is in verse 42, which is perhaps the most important verse in the psalm. It says, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. They had forgotten God's redemption. They had forgotten what God did on their behalf. Do we? Boy says, I'm sure we do. Or we would not sin as grievous, grievously or as often as we do. Derek Kidner says on this point, if redemption itself is forgotten, faith and love will not last long. If we forget what it cost God to redeem us from our sins through Jesus' death, we will not long trust him in life's trials or love him enough to obey him in times of temptation. The cure is to remember, which is what this psalm is all about. We need to remember all that God has done, end quote. During this second time of reflection, as Asaph thinks back to what God has done, he, he thinks of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt in verses 44 through 51. Uh, six of those ten plagues are described, plagues that were sent in order to deliver God's people from slavery. So Asaph is describing the details of the redemption and how God did mighty works on behalf of his people Notice this great contrast that is described where the Egyptians were devoured and they were destroyed. But God, according to verse 49, let loose on them his burning anger, his wrath, his indignation and distress, a company of destroying angels. The worst judgment of all was the death of all the firstborn, verse 51. That was what the Egyptians, God's enemies, experienced. But then we come to verse 52 where we have this this contrast beginning, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. And then we see the contrast again at the end of verse 53, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. Question worth contemplating is how can a people experience such loving care and not respond with love and devotion? How can we be delivered from the greater enemies of sin, of death, of Satan, and not be overwhelmed with love and gratitude toward our God? How can we not give ourselves to God, loving him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength? 
And we read in verses 54 and 55 of even more details and, and examples concerning what God did for his people. He drove out the Canaanite nations before them and gave them a land and inheritance. In stanza 6, verses 56 through 64, we read of the spiritual state of the people once they were in the promised land. And we would think that at some point, God's gracious acts would meet with the responses of gratitude and love and faith. But as Asaph summarizes Israel's history, he brings out that the rebellion of the people once they were in the land was just as bad and in some cases worse than when they were in the wilderness. For what Asaph describes is the horribly rebellious sin of idolatry. Verse 58, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. And we should by now be able to predict the Lord's response, that twofold response. On the one hand, the Lord responded with even greater judgments. Asaph refers in verse 60 to how the Lord rejected Shiloh as the place for his tabernacle. Verses 61 through 64 seem to be a reference to when the ark was taken by the Philistines. Remember how they were allowed to be victorious over Israel. They killed many Israelites. Again and again, things did not go well for Israel as chastening and judgment for their rebellion. So that's the first and expected response of God to Israel's sin. And then the second is one we've already seen as well. I'm referring to the good news. Remember the good news that ended the first half of this psalm in verses 37 and 38. These are verses that are really about the forgiveness of sins that we have through Jesus Christ. Well, just as the first half of the psalm ends on this note of good news, so does the last half. Last stanza, stanza 7, verses 65 through 72, describe how eventually God beat back the enemies of his people. Though God allowed Israel to be defeated in many battles, he never allowed his people to be completely destroyed. Even though he rejected Ephraim, Judah was chosen. Even though Shiloh was abandoned as, as God's dwelling place, the ark and the tabernacle were brought to Mount Zion. The psalm ends by talking about David, the greatest earthly king that was ever given to Israel. And under David, God gave the nation victory over its enemies. Under David, the nation rose to greatness. Of course, when we think of David, we are to think of the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised son of David, the king who would reign forever, for David was a type of Christ. And just as the nation did not deserve a good king like David, even more so, we do not deserve our Lord and King Jesus Christ. And just as David drove back Israel's enemies, Jesus saves us from the ultimate enemies of sin and Satan and death. And Jesus is, as our king, one who rules always in love. As much as God's people then and today deserve judgment, God is merciful. And though he chastens us, he does not, not abandon us. He preserves his people. He provides the salvation we need. And so we see this emphasis on grace, on the undeserved favor of God, a grace that is greater than all of our sin. And we recognize that ultimately the covenant is unconditional. And what I mean by that is our relationship with God does not depend upon our good works. It does not depend upon our finally getting everything together. Our relationship with God is one of grace, a totally a work of grace. At the same time, as we remember God's ways with us, and we're called to remember, 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 remember. Recall his grace. And as we do so, we are obligated as covenant members to respond 
with loving obedience and service. Because we deserve nothing, but we've received everything as a gift of grace. The psalm comes to us and says, don't be like Israel who forgot God. Don't forget what will happen if you turn from him. Don't forget what God has done. Don't forget his blessings. Remember his judgments, his power, and his grace. And don't forget to tell the next generation too. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so forgetful, so inclined to forget all of the grace that you've shown us. We are such by nature rebellious people. Father, we pray that we would remember the things that you have done, that we would remember your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that as we hear these stories of the Old Testament, that we would be reminded both of our tendency towards sin, that we would flee from those sins, but we'd also remember with great thankfulness that would itself compel us to even a greater striving for obedience, that our salvation is a matter totally of your grace. What an amazing thing that you did not cast off your people. What an amazing thing that you do not cast us off. We thank you for your faithfulness, your undying love, for a covenant that is unconditional because it is grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, grounded in your love and grace toward us, atoning for our sins. So, Father, may we take these lessons to heart, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.